Okay, so levels. Such levels. Very level. That oh yeah, it's there. Um yes, yeah, so this is the this is the pre interview part of the the interview. So this is like the talking level. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Glad to glad <laughs> to get level. <laughs> <laughs> Hello friends and welcome to episode 10, I think, of, it's either 10 or 11, whatever. I probably should have done actual research for this, um, of So Poetry. Um, sorry for the last couple of months of doing like one episode a month, um, as my addendum last time said, things have been busy. Um, I might do another addendum in March, maybe, to like give you a, if I have to go back to read, to listen to the other one to see all the things that I mentioned, but stuff has been busy. Um, and, uh. Yeah, that's not an excuse, just kind of yeah. is what it is. It happens. Yeah. Um, but as of beginning of April, I will have more time to devote to creative endeavors, this being one of them. Um, so I'll try to get back into the swing of doing two, um, two interviews a month. Um, I keep asking for feedback, um, and so far no one has given me any feedback, so I don't know... If you would prefer just to have one, if you want to, if you want them to be shorter, if you don't mind that they're like sometimes almost two hours long. Two hours? Yeah. Um, yeah I'll give you feedback right now. Okay. <laughs> long. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, some, like, so I I don't know if I've mentioned this before on, on the podcast, but I, in prep for the interviews, I sent out, um, I have a list of questions that I've been keeping on Google Docs that I will, like, share to my, like, upcoming interviewees. Yeah. Um, and, like, not necessarily things, like, just things to be thinking about, because there are certain, like, two or three questions that I want to ask everybody, but for the rest of it, it's kind of like a freeform, you know, just kind of whatever. Um. I have to say, it's helpful having the questions in advance. Yes. Because um, I don't, like, I really would hate to, like, ask somebody something and have them be put on the spot of being like, I don't, I have to think about that. And then there's just dead air. Yeah, Because exactly. I have enough dead air when I just pause between things <laughs> that I say. Um, but the, uh, like, I'm, for me, I'm I'm still trying to figure out the, the balance between, and I don't know, I don't know why I'm, like, talking to the audience, whatever. Um, you are, would probably find this interesting, Samlin. I will introduce her in a second. Don't worry. <laughs> um, trying to find the balance between having this be like a conversation and an interview. Because yeah. I'm, there are certain things that I, like I said, I'm curious to ask people, like poets that I know or non-poets, about poetry. Um, but I'm also just kind of interested to see kind of what happens. Because I think, mm-hmm. um, given the topics that people talk about and the ways that they talk about them and the perspective that they have can reveal like as much, if not more about their views on things than just like point blankingly asking the question, like, what do you think about this? Um, and I feel like the last couple of episodes that I've had have been real, like 
more conversation and more tangential than some of the earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might just be guests that are more um, of a public fusion. No. Um, ten- whatever. The tendency to just kind of go off and just like Proclivity. talk. Proclivity. Thank you. <laughs> um, I forgot what the hell I was trying to say. Um, yeah, that they might have a higher proclivity um, to like just go on tangents right. and just talk. Um, so I'm trying to be a little more mindful of that, but I don't know if it's a mindfulness that will lead to any sort of like tightening the reins on things or just being like aware of like, okay, this is going to be like, this kind of is what it is. Cause I really, um, aside from talking to people that I'm friends with or that I find <coughs> interesting about poetry, there's really like no rules that I have yeah. for this. It's just kind of like sit down and talk to somebody for like an hour and yeah. just whatever so anyway all of that being said um i am sitting here with my dear dear friend sarah lynn Lyons. um if poet extraordinaire yes <laughs> just kidding um, and world-class editor try i try <laughs> um so for those of you out there listening i don't know you may or may not have uh, noticed a trend um of the people that i've had as my guests um most of them have graduated from the University of Baltimore MFA's program or in, or in the process of graduating or in the process of going through getting their master's at the University of Baltimore. Um, but Sarah Lynn and I started at the same time mm-hmm. and were, we've, I think we were in like most of... Almost every class, yeah. <laughs> it seems like. Um, so I've known her pretty steadily for the last five Five years? Five one. years. Coming up on five years. Yeah. Five years this fall. We would yeah. have entered, yeah. Aww. Buddies. <sighs> That's crazy. Um, yeah, so I've been, and I feel like, I was thinking about this, um, like, as I was setting things up, but I think that you were, like, the second person that I got to know Aww. at the program. Like, mm-hmm. Anthony was the first, which makes sense, because he's just, that's the way that that's he is. That's who he but is, But I think yeah. that... <laughs> I think that you were the you were the second, which also makes sense because I tend to yeah. get to know people yeah. pretty easily. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, but um, you have any you want to say anything about yourself? This is not. I probably should add, add this question because this is the one that seems to trip people up the most. And we're like, I don't know what to say about myself. But is there anything that you think you want to talk about yourself for a little bit? Um, whatever you're up to. Yeah, I I mean I guess it's I could say you know I I write poetry. Um, I consider myself to be a poet, but I, I don't do it full time. Um, I do mm-hmm. work in um, the creative field, and I'm very lucky enough to have found one of the few jobs. Um, I write for Johns Hopkins, uh, their Office of Communications, and um, they have a website that kind of uh, gathers all of the press releases and communications materials and sends them back out into the world repackaged in a digestible readable way and so I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with that and edit those and sometimes write some of them from scratch and so that's that's what I've been doing and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that and because uh, I have a sincere love of editing and mm-hmm. of language and writing and things like that and um, the role that I have there has really affected my approach to po- poetry Really? Um, yeah. Ooh, I'm excited yeah. to hear this. So, like, I, you knew that you knew that I worked at UMBC, mm-hmm. right? Um, with your work at Hopkins, like the stuff that you write, if you were to write something from scratch, do you get credit for that, or is it just kind of like, 
it's attached to just like it's a Johns Hopkins like right. missive that's just being like sent out. Yeah, that really, and I'm very lucky um, that my editor, he has a journalistic background where I think he is used to getting a lot of credit for everything and, and bylines are very important. Mm. Um, I have no background in journalism. It's all creative writing. So, you know, there's a lot of ownership that comes with that. And I'm lucky enough that our system is at my discretion. So if I'm working oh, okay. on something that I feel I've put more than 80% of the work into, mm -hmm. then I feel confident attaching my name to it. Um, on the other hand, we do a lot of just boring stuff. You know, there's a, there's a lot that we have to produce mm -hmm. for the president's office. And, um, just like, like filler content. Some you? of that can yeah. be really administrative. And, you know, Johns Hopkins is a wonderful place, and they do a lot of really fascinating work. Uh, but that's not 100% of our communications. Right. We, we're also responsible for this whole enterprise that's doing, you know, things like incoming class that's not fulfilling creatively. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, I can just kind of plug in our little filler byline. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's fine and dandy too because it, it lets me stretch different muscles. Right, yeah. Yeah. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if there's going to be some kind of issue with me talking about my work <laughs> there. I don't know how that works. Is I it proprietary? I don't think enough people listen to this. <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, if that's the case, I, I have not been briefed on any confidentiality or proprietary. Um, <laughs> I will not press you for any any like tidbits of information. Please don't. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's interesting that um, like as like I, I see the writing world. I've been thinking about this a little bit too. Like the writing world was really kind of separated out um, into like the creators and then the kind of like curators, mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, yeah, even even with writing, you like the, the actual like genesis of new stuff. Um, you have people who generate it from the curation of stuff instead of like the actual like like writing something from scratch. But I, yeah. I meant that more of like the. Um, like the content creators and then the content, I guess, like editors, where mm -hmm. you have these two kind of separate worlds. And yes. it's um, like as an editor, I feel like you you could potentially do as much creative work to a piece as the creator does, but it's viewed in a very, very different way. That's like you're not, um, well, like you might be the, the generating new ideas for this thing, but it's like your role is to like, um, I don't know to like help, like provide, um, I guess like structural support and like a solid foundation for this right. thing to like be, um, like if somebody has a. It's like nature versus nurture. Yeah. It it really is. You know, you're not the person who created the work, but a lot of the work of the editor. I mean, it can really change the piece. Mm -hmm. um, when I was working with Passenger, um, a journal for authors over the age of fifty. Um, and it's, it's journal and a, and a press. Mm -hmm. And um, I was working there and we had this manuscript that we were trying to turn into our first full length um, prose piece. Oh yeah, the, the yeah. letters, right? Um, no, it's, it's called Beyond Lobu Bridge and it's about um, a- That's, I don't, why do I think it is about letters? 
I don't know. That's I, it, that's the thing that I was thinking. I mean, but there were some. There are some letters in it, um, but it's not. It was epistolary where there. Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not that. It's it's definitely a memoir, and um, I remember there was a moment where we just could not get this part of the story to work out, and I was struck with you know let's turn this into um, a prologue. And it, oh. it stopped it from muddying a oh. lot of the story and it let the story breathe in its own way because we were debating should it, I mean, it, it contains information that's necessary, but it really is bogging things down where it was. And and I'm really proud of that move because it, it gave the story its own life. Mm-hmm. It gave life to these details that were beautifully crafted and it wasn't something that was immediately apparent mm-hmm. to those who were reading it, what was wrong with it. Right. And it's, it felt like surgery. <laughs> Let me just elevate my... <laughs> no, but I think that that's like... I just... A friend of mine um, sent me a like a story memoir piece that she had written, um, and I was doing that for like the hour before you showed up, was mm-hmm. like responding to her. Um, and it really is like you are... I mean, I, I don't like viewing, um, like, that type of editing as surgical, because I used to view it like that, and I was very, very, um, what's the word, um, reluctant to edit, like, anything, um, just because my, my view and my perspective of what, like, editing, what revision was, was totally skewed and not the way that it needed to be at all. But it really is, it's like you're, you're providing a kind of, like, like second opinion on all of this stuff, um, and you have a sort of like distance that you could look at this thing super objective would be like, now I'm gonna slice this out. Now I'm gonna slice this and move it over here. I'm gonna stitch this back together. And you know, it's like you have the, the freedom to kind of like. You saw it as Frankenstein. Yeah, kind of. That, you know, it's like you you have all of the, essentially all the pieces there. Um, at least for her, her piece, it was like, like 90% there. Mm-hmm. And it just, like hers was in the order that I think that it needed to be in, but there were certain things that could have been like, you know, you had to like crack it open and kind of shove some more things in there mm-hmm. to give it like the weight or the um, um, context. Yeah, yeah, but like, I think there, there at least for that piece, there are certain moments that needed to be heightened to really get the sense of like what was at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so it's like you know you needed to, like for that particular paragraph, it's just like you have to separate like slice it open and then like put or like flush out or like drag out some of the other things that are kind of like they're in that paragraph but Mm -hmm. they're and they're in her but they need to be put in there so that the reader can get like oh okay this is why this day turned out to be as bad as it was because like this is what was you're levying this against it and this is what you're up against and it's like that's the battle that's happening throughout this piece is the expectation and the stuff Um, (coughs) and it's I don't know it's interesting that like when I'm in the process of editing, I usually like revising something. I very, I typically write very, very little, because mm-hmm. um, it feels like it's a totally separate part of my brain that's being active and engaged, and it's difficult for me to like shift between like being creative and just creating stuff versus looking at it super, super critically and being like, okay, I, like what do I need to change? How does this all, um, how does this all work together? What do I need to? Um, like effect to like the chapbook of mine that's being published like going through and, and revising I feel like I'm still kind of in that mode where 
Like I was looking at it, you know, it's like as the manuscript and how does this all flow together and is the language consistent in my use of description and like the ways that I'm describing stuff, is that consistent throughout the, the entirety of the, the piece? Yeah. Um, versus sitting down and like writing something because I know that's like that, that critic or that editor is going to be like, well, I don't know if you should, like, I think you should probably change this, like make that different in the process of writing instead of just having the freedom to get, get it like all out and then leave right. it there for a second and then like return to it. Yeah. Do you, when you, like, edit versus writing, do you, do you feel that, like, that distance between the two, or can you, like, can you shift back and forth between them? Um, so that's, that's an interesting question. It, I think the role of the editor is so crucial. I think that that is, um, Kendra Kapelke has said, um. Head of the MFA program at UB. She said that the editor's role is really like the midwife and, and helping to birth Ooh. this piece. And hmm. and I see that as true. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that most writers can do it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't go off into the woods and give birth by a tree. <laughs> like, right. You need somebody there helping, coaching you. And a lot of times saying, no, you, this way that you're saying it is not the way that it needs to be said. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, I admire those who take on their the writing, editing, publishing process, start to finish um, in, in isolation or alone. Um, I think that that, but often I think that that may be doing a disservice to some of the work. I think that having that second opinion is of the essence. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I had um a long-term assignment that I was working on. It was a pro- an in-depth profile on someone. It was really fascinating. And I really enjoyed the whole process, research, interviewing, um, all of the writing was wonderful to do. And I really just needed an edit machete. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call it at work. It's a machete, like my editor who I've, again, I've developed a really great relationship with where mm-hmm. um, I trust what he's saying is for the good of the piece right. and no- nothing personal. Yeah. He's not attacking my word usage. He's attacking the piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's what's been really helpful um, to see things stripped out that the poet in me wanted, but the academic writing world is very different. Yeah. So, um, and I, I will never forget also, you know, in the creative writing world, one of my first classes with Kendra Kapelke, she had written this gorgeous poem about the Forsythia bush at the end of her driveway. Mm-hmm. And that's that golden rod, those long woody stems uh-huh. with little yellow flowers mm-hmm. on it. And, you know, she had written this line about how they were like little stars. And um, she put it up on the docucam which was, you know, before we had projectors and stuff, it was this little video camera that would project. (laughs) And um, so she went through her editing process for the whole class. And she said, you know, this piece about stars, that's pedestrian. We've seen this. And just put this big purple X through it. And the whole class let out this gasp. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we were all intro to creative writing students. We all loved the way that she wrote that little piece. Mm-hmm. And she just said, you, you can't be attached to things, even if they're nicely put, if it's not newly put. Right. And I think that's the role of the editor, the, to really kill the darlings that, yeah. that the well, there author is, hasn't done yet. 
I think it was in her class. Um, we read, I don't know if it was a letter or if it was like a academic, a piece of academic writing from, I think it was Richard Hugo, um, who was talking about that like you, as a, as a writer, you owe absolutely, you owe allegiance to nothing except the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that's interesting. And that, like reading that or encountering that was the first kind of like shift in my understanding of what revision and editing was. Um, and it really allowed me to put um, like the re- critiques and the responses that I got from either classmates or even like Kendra herself or other teachers into like a certain level of like, I didn't have to listen to everybody. I could filter all of that out with, it's like, does this work with the piece? Because initially, it's like that, thinking about it that way, and thinking about it, it's like you owe, you you, you are um, beholden to nothing except where the piece wants to go. Right. Shifts your view of the piece as something that's like a, um, like a clinical problem that needs to be solved and it turns into something more intimate, something that's more um, like an actual relationship with this thing. It's like you have to understand what it is and where it wants to go to get the most effective revision and the most effective edit. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing so and like spending time with the piece and actually getting to understand it on like an intuitive level, um, you can begin filtering out the stuff that people say about it as like, this, like yeah, this, is, this works for this piece or like, no, this doesn't really do, it's like that's not where I was going with this or that's not where this really wants to go. But it does make me think about this thing, which is actually something that I need to do in effect. Yeah. Um, which you, I think you may have been part of the writer's group when we had Mandy May's poem about growing corn. Yeah. And it was about a relationship that she had with a boyfriend, but it was entirely about a father-daughter relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the authenticity of the piece was paternal mm-hmm. and not sexual and that was really interesting too to see how even something based on a real life experience that's not the life that the piece took on mm-hmm. and I was really proud of her for um, letting that piece take on that life yeah and that's I feel like there's a there's a level of like trust that you have to give oh, yeah. your work um, like not only trust in yourself, but trust in like your creative process and trust that the piece will kind of wind its way where it wants to go. And trust in the words too. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I am, I tend to be a poet who writes very short pieces. Mm-hmm. I like getting in and getting out and, um, you should, you should practice haiku. I should. I, I actually, part of my, um, portfolio to enter the, the program was featured haiku. Really? Yeah. It was the traditional... Oh. Um, I don't know, like the counted... Wait, was it? Oh, actually, I think that's a lie. I don't think it was. I don't know. I'll have to go back there and find it. But... Um, I don't think I ever knew that. But also, you know, a lot of my issues that I then encountered was that my poems were really vapid. They didn't go anywhere. And I think that was because I wasn't trusting myself to get to the kernel of what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a the kind of poet who I'm only going to write when I have something to say. Yeah. And yeah, people who like can force themselves to write or have like that, that <laughs> discipline. I don't understand. Like I'm cause I, I, I've always felt like less of a writer because I don't have a writing, 
like a writing practice or like that discipline thing. Um, and I don't know if, cause I feel like, like you saying that, I feel like we probably write very similar. Cause like I'm, mm. I very rarely if ever write when I'm not struck by like, Oh, this is a lot like you're just doing something and suddenly like a line comes to yeah. you or like you have an experience it starts like, with a line. like, Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta get this. Um, but I think that there is like, there's the same type of discipline, but it's more discipline and like, learning how to listen to yourself in yes. those instances where you know it's like you could be because there are, there are plenty of times that i've been on the verge of falling asleep um and i'll get like a line or like the beginnings of something and i'll be like this it's happened to me en- enough where i'm like i'll remember in the morning and then i don't that mm-hmm. i've started um which is one of the great things about smartphones like i go into my google docs open up a new document and just either like voice to text it or just like write out whatever it was that i had and just leave it there and then go to sleep yeah. so that I have it in the morning. And I actually, there's a um, kind of a, uh, it will probably end up being a longer poem that I'm working on right now that started as like I, things that I heard in my head right before I fell asleep. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I, it's like, I have to, it's like, fuck, yeah. I'm going to lose like an hour of sleep on this, but it's like, I got to fucking do it. Cause yeah. it's like, it's been training like that for me as well. Like I, I I've noticed also with my dreams, um, I have very vivid, very intense dreams. A lot dreams. of your thesis, or not a lot, but chunks from your thesis were... Focused on dreams, yeah. yeah. You're, and so, you know, I've never actively tried to lucid dream. Um, I've done it before, but, you know, it's it wasn't something I ever attempted to do. But what I had been attempting to do is to stop waking myself up. Ah. Um, and I the, the problem is I, have a, I tend to have a lot of nightmares. And um, so... You know, just last week I had just the most horrifying dream. It was awful. And I just kept with it and kept following it and it got worse. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it got worse. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's just, um, and I feel like writing helped me with that training. Mm. The don't resist the urge to back away from something that's painful or scary yeah, it's like or difficult. Yeah, you sit with it and just let it, yes. like you don't, you don't, yeah, one of my, um, one of my teachers in undergrad, Dr. Stetko, um, who is a, like, imposing Romanian woman who is one of the best teachers and the best people that I, the best teachers that I've had and one of the best people that I know, um, I took a prose class with her and she said, um, and I'm sure that other people have said this, but like it's instilled with me in her voice saying that a writer's job is to not look away. Yeah. It's like you, like everyone else will look away. Like, but the artist, like the, the per, like the, you're as an artist, I mean, like right. she was talking about writers, but I feel like artists in general, um, like, and this might transition us into one of the questions. Yeah. Um, but one of the roles of an artist possibly or arguably the primary role is to like when stuff is happening to be there to witness it and to um like catalog that this stuff has happened as Mm. terrible or as horrible as it is or as like amazing and as beautiful as it is like your job is to be there to add to offer some sort of reportage to the rest of the world because they don't have the countenance or um like the willingness, the attention. You know, or like the the training, or yeah, like the attention or the um, like the mindfulness to be like, oh, I need to pay attention to this, and to be like the the presence of mind to stay when something's going to shit. You're like, yeah, okay, let's see where this goes. Cause yeah, 
it's like I, I can't it's like it's like the compulsion of like I can't not do it right um so speaking of that <laughs> what and we were talking about this a little bit before the um she mentioned that she had something to say right before we started the interview so I'm <laughs> eager to get to it but mm-hmm. what what do you feel like the role of a, of a poet is or like poetry in general like what where where do you see that functioning in like culture or society as a on a larger scale? Yeah. So, a lot of what I see is the role of the poet is the questioner. Mm. Um, that's something that I I tend to explore in my poems. That um, you know, it's it's not a surprise that my poems are preoccupied with the classes that I'm taking the the things that I'm learning, the people mm-hmm. I'm meeting, the experiences that I'm having. And, um, you know, a lot of my early poems dealt with history because I was in history classes. <laughs> um, and then, you know, a lot of my thesis deals with motherhood because that that's where I am right now. I'm questioning it. I'm curious. I'm excited. I'm terrified. And so questioning giving voice to my own questions as a means of addressing greater societal issues. Okay. Um, so it's like your, your personal questions are a way in to talk about things on a, like a, a, on a bigger scale. It's like you can put it into the context and the perspective of like that I'm dealing with it like this, but I'm getting into, like, backtracking into this is... Um, and vice versa. Okay. Um, you know, finding these greater societal things that I'm paying attention to, things like race and gender and identity and nationalism, and then boiling it back down into the microcosm of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a, a moment where just outside your door, right here, I was on um, Mount Royal Terrace and a woman came scre- down the street screaming her head off and crying and sobbing. And she, there's a, a part right here where there's a, an exit ramp from the, from the highway. Uh... And she the it, the traffic exits from the highway onto the terrace and she jumped the curb out onto 83 screaming before she did that she turned and looked at me she was being chased by two people and she turned and looked at me and she ignored me and ran past me and i remember being very shaken by that moment um i was just on my way home from school and i remember thinking well if i hear more screaming i'll i'll call the police if i and i remember being so ashamed that a woman screaming 50 feet away from me wasn't the threshold that i would call the police mm-hmm. it was once i'm safe in my apartment and i still hear screaming right, yeah. i was so ashamed of that reaction because it was fear and then i was further it was further complicated by the fact that this black woman this heartbroken or at the end of her rope black woman turned to see a young white girl and didn't see an ally Mm -hmm. didn't see help didn't see someone who would intervene and to be honest i wasn't that person right yeah and so you know that experience i have struggled to write with and i have a version of it published in my 
the thesis, but I don't think it's still, it still doesn't do it justice because I'm still grappling with that kind of explosion outward of like the macro view of what this means to society and then pulling it all back inward again mm -hmm. of this one experience. And so that's something that I still wrestle with or in terms of putting into words mm -hmm. what it was like. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I really address a lot, or I'm sorry, that's how I really enter a lot of my poems. It's, it usually starts with a question or it usually starts with an experience that then leads to a question mm -hmm. and then back and then back into that experience again. Like it's like a, hmm. like a toboggan. Is that what I want to say? Or like a ski? Like yeah, a, yeah. What is it called? When they, oh, the slalom? Slalom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not um, a toboggan. <laughs> Well, toboggans could do that, I guess. <laughs> but toboggan's the one that has, like, it's just essentially a plank of wood that just, like, curls up in the front, or does it have runners? I think it has runners. Okay, because I think that the ones that have runners you can steer. The ones that are just, like, curled pieces of wood, that look like the end of a, like an elf's <laughs> shoe, you just, you yeah. point in the direction, you just go. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's how I view the oh. role. I, I think what you said about poetry being the catalog of these experiences i think that's very authentic i think that's very true i think good poetry yeah. should capture something about that experience and i i think that well a lot of the a lot of the poetry that i'm um interested in like when you were talking about that i was thinking about mary oliver specifically because mm -hmm. um, she's kind of a like the a, like a lodestone that i keep coming back to that um does all of these things that like move me in very very specific ways but the fact yeah. that it's like she um there's actually i was talking to tracy about this at the end of the workshop on saturday that like um i see oliver's writing um like she's a very nature-based poem or poet mm -hmm. um but she like her walking out in nature is, is like that's the a way for her to connect with stuff and to right. to draw out the bigger things into herself and allow herself to kind of eke out into the bigger things. So you right. have these, this interesting sort of like, um, like with Orion, where she's talking about, you know, like him in winter and being up in like in the sky and just like these, like kind of on a grandiose scale. And then he comes and sits next to her on a log by the fire. And it's like this real sort of intimate connection with this, you know, this, um, like mythological being while she's at night in the woods mm -hmm. um and i feel like that like i can see a kindredness with that sort of interplay with like the the outer world or like the the bigger outer world and then the equally as big but more contained um like inner world mm -hmm. that you have it's like it like it almost feels like breathing that it's like it the like inhalation or like the exhalation out into the big world and then the inhalation of it drawing it all back into yourself and it's like that yeah that rhythm that's a beautiful way to put that too yeah it's and it it's also part of what makes it difficult to have a job at academic writing mm. um you know the poet as the questioner i am able to go and, and ask these questions about the world and write about it in articles mm -hmm. now and I find that I'm not writing as much poetry mm -hmm. which is a shame but I don't feel 
like I'm not being creatively satisfied. I, I, I feel like right, I yeah. have an adequate creative outlet. And <clears throat> so it's it's been an interesting experience transitioning into this position and, um, and out of the creative world, which in turn led me to get the position in the first place. Right, yeah. So, you huh. know, it's, it's been very, it's been a fascinating hmm. uh, journey. <laughs> well, I could, I definitely can see, like, the beginnings of you, you using the skills that you, that you're picking up at Hopkins to write these, like, really, like, amazing hybrid, <laughs> like, research, investigative journalist that's a great idea. More poetry laden things. <laughs> I'd love to like... see that. I mean, there are some topics that you just can't do justice to in um, in academic writing. Uh, you know, so currently, um, okay. So, so one of my early poems. Um, I was in a health class for my undergraduate degree, mm-hmm. and you know, you have to, you have a health requirement. You have to take the little half credit. You know, and we had to take on some major world health crisis and I did female genital mutilation. <laughs> mm. And the, of course the poem that I wrote didn't do it justice. And it's, but at the same time, I think nothing but a poem has any business talking about some of these ethical things. And of course that's not true. We, of course we need scientific papers. Right, we need yeah. academic, like I'm not, I don't, I just mean like, like from an artist's view and from the, the, if the goal is to capture this experience in its entirety, I don't think anyone but an artist can do that. Yeah, because I, I think with, with art, you're not necessarily dealing, I mean, you can and you can incorporate this, but you're not necessarily dealing with like objective factual truth. Right. It's, it's things that are informative to your work, but I feel like with art, you're really dealing with like emotional truth. Right which can be a little bit blurry and can be a little bit um especially when we bring all of our biases privileges to that right yeah it's like it's it's very it's much more like the experiential truth of the stuff that you've gone through um which again can and should be informed by like as accurately as you can be about stuff but that's not the main focus of why you're writing it's like the main point of writing a poem is to get to let you know like how many millions of women like a year are like affected by uh, right. genital mutilation, the goal of the poem is to make you fucking feel it, right? And to like hit you in every possible place that you live, yeah. Um, so that you like it, you do something about it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it was it was an experience writing it that was unresolved from beginning to end, and. Like the other poem I, I had mentioned with the, the woman in Route 83, like, I don't know that there is a resolution to these because because of what you had just said. There is really no way for me to experience them other than as an outsider, as an observer. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that means that I can't access some of the emotions, but I can't access the right whole truth. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think that that's... Like, that's a really, I think, important distinction that artists should make. Like, keeping, like, that intention and keeping the, whatever work, um, 
truthful to your own experience. Like you said, yeah. it's like you you can access some of that stuff because you know, like you're a woman and you can like empathetically or imagining put yourself in that situation or like at least think about like what that would like the kind of the, the greater context of the things that that hits upon and then like personally what going through that what that would feel like um, and I think that there is like value to outsiders points of view right you know um, it just needs to be presented in such a way that it's very aware of the fact that it's like this is you know coming at it from an outside yeah um, well and all that said I will say I think the reader has to be able to access every inch of a poem. Yeah. The kinds of poems that I have no use for, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say I hate them, I'm not going to say that they're bad. It's actually a question. I know it is, I know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I hate them or that they're bad, or I, I just have no interest okay. <laughs> in them. Yeah. Maybe that's worse than hate, I don't know. But um, the kinds that, that are inaccessible the the kind that you need at the source mm-hmm. next to you to read like uh, I, I I have no use for it's more it's like more of an intellectual exercise than yeah and you know like that it, it has it it had its movement and it had its place and its purpose and that's that's great this is not for me um, I feel like that way a lot with um, like Bach music and other like traditional like classical pieces it's like they're great. And they're, like, wonderful pieces of music, but mm-hmm. they just don't do fucking anything mm-hmm. for me. Because it's, like, it's, you're running scales. You're using, Arpeggios. like, counter, counterpoint. Good for you. Yay. Yeah. Like, give me, give me, like, a Philip Glass or Well, and that was like important at a, that was important at a time when they were showing off their right, yeah. skills yeah. And, and their technical precision. And, and even in a lot of times, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it's also, you you know, a lot of that stuff it had was, its moment. was commissioned, moment too, passed. and not necessarily, like... Right. Like, if, if Bach was alive now, like, doing the same sort of music that he was doing, it'd be interesting to see, like, what the hell he would come up with. He'd he be was, writing commercials. Like, jingles? Yeah. Huh. I mean, if he worked on commission. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, if he didn't have to. Mm. Um, but, yeah, anyway... Um, yeah, I'm, um, I kind of feel similarly about persona poems. Like, I... Like, I am the teapot? No, well, like, if you're, if you're trying to personify an inanimate object, I, I will cut a little bit of slack, because it really is kind of just up to your own imagination. And then, for, for me, it really is like, if, if empathetically or intuitively that feels like it makes sense, I'm on board with mm-hmm. it. But, like, with, if, um... Somebody's imagining that there's somebody else. Um, and this is probably why I write poetry and not, like, fiction with characters, because it's really, really difficult for me to imagine, um, like, s- somebody else, um, like, a fully fleshed-out character that I know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Because if, if I, the times that I've written prose, um, then I have to deal with characters. It's a lot of, like, just dealing with other people. It's like, you know, I might have... a an inkling of what why they're doing what they're doing but a lot of times it's like it's just much a mystery to me as it is to anybody else because like i don't have fucking access to that it's just you know they, mm. they do what they do yeah. um but i don't know there's a there's a level of like almost like audacity it's like how dare you think that you can like um i think it was maybe pound or somebody else that was like the fisherman's 
wife, like a, a translation of it or like a, like a new version of it, which is like an old, like, like a um, older Chinese poem. Um, and it's like, how the hell do you know what it was like back then? And then sometimes when people nail it, I'm like, how the hell do you know what it was like the, it's like, if, if you're, if you're going to do it, I don't know, there's like, there's some weird tightrope that you have to walk between like understanding it in a like historical contextual sense, but also understanding it of just kind of like general human nature sense. And maybe right. that's what mm -hmm. I have more of a deficit of. It's like, I don't know why anybody does fucking like anything. Well, I think that's like humility. Like you wouldn't dare presume. Yeah. To know. Yeah. Which, yeah, and I think that's probably why, and like in my own poetry, it's a lot of more like, I'm just going to describe stuff that I see. Yeah. And it's like, there's a table. I'm going to talk about the table. Well, that's not, that's miscategorizing, <laughs> mischaracterizing your, yeah. your poetry. But, yeah, I don't know. There's, yeah, there's a lot of them. It's just like, I think it's, I think it's a similar reason of why I am really um, dissatisfied with a lot of poems that rhyme. Because it's either predictable or it's just not executed well enough for it to be like, okay, yeah, I can I can forgive you some of the things that you did. Like or the, it's simply serving the rhyme. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, because I, God, there's so many times that, even like listening to music and stuff, it's like somebody, somebody says a word, and I'm like, okay, the next, the next verse, the ending word is going to be one of these three things, and right. it is one of those three things, just because yeah. like. Without fail. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to rhyme, be inventive with it. Yeah. Um, like leave it up to like don't don't make me expect what you're what you're going with. Yeah. Um. And I think it's like that takes me out of the experience of reading the poem, which I imagine that like the ones that are inaccessible to you, like it breaks the spell of the poem. It's like the the experience of being there reading this thing, and you have this like this inaccessibility. You become aware of the fact that it's like I'm reading a poem, and I can't just experience it. Sometimes, and and sometimes it's just it's. I get angry. <laughs> like I don't want to look up these words. No, I, I want I want to experience what someone else experienced. Mm. And I you definitely need to fucking read haiku. That's what, like <laughs> that's that's what it is. Yeah. Well, kind of like a roundabout way. Yeah, I mean I think that there's some haiku that I'm like what, yeah. <laughs> but I mean there's. It's important to me that a poem not be too full of itself. I hate ego. <laughs> like it's I'm. So how do you how do you feel about Billy Collins? I don't know why that that was the first like poet that came to mind when you said that a poem needs to not be so full of itself. But that, <laughs> like like I have I have a one of his books, and that's kind of, I think kind of the feeling that I got with a lot of it is just like you're so it's like you're just pompous. Huh. Well, that's interesting that you say that. I I haven't read a lot of Billy Collins, his work, but one of the things that I brought along with Ooh. me, I brought a show and tell piece. <laughs> well, just a, a tell, a tell and tell. A tell and tell. So oh, hey. it's Billy Collins. Um, well, he's the editor of this book of 180 poems. It's poetry 180. And so when he was, um, is this more? This is the second edition. Okay. And so he has this two-part series that I guess he started when he was the Poet Laureate. And it was an attempt to make po poetry more accessible. Oh. And to kind of rebrand it. Poetry 180 is 
poetry's doing a 180 in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's quaint. Yeah. Although I can't so, say anything because my podcast is so. <laughs> all of these poems, you know, some of them are over two pages, but not very many. This mm-hmm. one is. This one is not. This one is not. And they, they're all readable, digestible. You get in and get out. And mm-hmm. that is what I like. That's my aesthetic. That's what I write. Um, you know, and again, I'm not saying that there's anything right or wrong about it. Just right. for me, mm-hmm. that's how I want to experience. That's how I want to experience art, mm-hmm. too. You know, I have no interest in performance art because I don't want to be there for more than three hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, okay. I, I want to be able to experience something on my own terms, um, and so. That's why I, if if the artist is imposing on me, mm-hmm. as the viewer, reader, user, experiencer, I get pissed off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, like so with poetry, if you are going to impose on me and make me get a fucking dictionary, I'm pissed. <laughs> so like, <laughs> so something like leaves of grass or how, like, would you not want to churn through that? <sighs> I don't think you could pay me to read leaves of grass. <laughs> I mean, I read it for undergrad, and it's it is what it is. Like I sound my barbaric yap. Like that's great. Just tell me what to pay attention to. Just give me the highlights. <laughs> that's good. We're good. That said, however, okay. Heart Crane, the bridge, the the part. Um, I think it's like section three, maybe section four. Uh, there's only like three or four sections. Is it H A R T or H H A R T C R A N E. C R A N E. And I think it's Atlantis, is what it's called. And so he's writing about the, the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's a lot of that. Um, it's a lot of wasteland. Like, uh, it's okay. like, ugh, <laughs> what are you talking about? But then he gets to this part where he's only describing this, the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge and it is exquisite it is extraordinary and you like that should just be the whole poem it's well (laughs) at the same time you know like I I don't like I don't like imposing my views Mm -hmm. on on that like I will take from a poem what I like and I will unapologetically like dislike Mm -hmm. or be ambivalent towards you know it's I don't that part of that poem was my favorite okay i'll say that <laughs> um how do you feel about i've encountered this a couple of times um there's one poem in particular that i this that i always come back when i think about this um it was in either the 2013 or 2014 like best american poetry anthology mm-hmm. thing um that this poem um starts off on this weird sort of like mathematical computer language terminology stuff and then it kind of goes on for that and then it ends in this beautiful beautiful scene of like somebody laying in a canoe on their back in a lake um and like that the ending part of the poem is like that's it that's to me that's the poem and i I started thinking about whether or not um because i see a lot of times with like poems like a lot of the poems that i'm most attracted to which i think i've mentioned numerous numerous times on this podcast are ones that kind of arrive at a poetic moment Mm -hmm. it's like the the writing of it and the language of it is not the most poetic it's usually probably plain spoken but it arrives in this really powerful like unexpected like 
oh shit place. Right. Um, and that poem did. But I don't know if, and I still don't know if the, it was necessary for the reader to read how the poem got there, if that makes the ending that like more tangible or more palpable somehow, or if you just had the ending, if that would have been like enough. Yeah. Um, I think you can make a case either way. You know, it's like, like have you have you encountered poems that are like, they they build up to this thing, and you would like, would you rather just have the thing, or do you feel like the experience of getting there, like, uh, enhances the poem at all? I think that I I've definitely experienced more poems where the journey is what makes the payoff. Okay. Um, however, that said, <laughs> that is most likely because I've given up on many other poems. Uh, okay. There has to be a payoff. There has to be something that keeps the reader interested. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's dead to the ages. It, it's okay. there's just no way to survive it. There's no way to There's no way for boring poetry to survive. I don't think. And you know, some people like the treasure hunt of T. S. Eliot, and that is wonderful for them. It's not my thing. And so, you know, I, I would say that I definitely have experienced more poems that way because the rest of them I give up on. Ah, uh, okay. Hmm. So, you know, it's like, would you rather watch a, a movie that's okay, 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 great, mm -hmm. or bad, 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 amazing? I would say, okay, 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 great, rather than the second one because... I would have given up on yeah, it. Like, yeah, there would have been a <laughs> You would have never known that it got amazing yeah. because it, okay. I'd stop it. I, so there has to be something, like enough. I'm a, I'm a new millennium user. I'm a, I, and I don't think that there is anything to apologize no, for right. about that. You know, I, I have the attention span that I have and I'm willing to No, and I think that there's, there's definitely engage. something to be said that like, it was a revolutionary thing for me when I realized that like, I don't know why I thought this, or I think why so many people think this, but, like, if you're reading a book and it's not doing anything for you... Drop it. You don't have to fucking finish the book. <laughs> yeah. Like, even if it's a book that you... Like, I, um... I see, by the way, I see you have three copies of House of Leaves. <laughs> uh, Shelby does. <laughs> it's so funny. Have you attempted? I've attempted, and it wasn't scary enough, so I stopped. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> Done. <laughs> like, it's not scary. I want to be scared. Okay. I have, a, I have a short story. Send it my way. Okay. Um, I love you, a new nightmare. <laughs> um, the pillow that you use, is it synthetic or down? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I think it's synthetic because good. I don't get pokey things okay, in my ear. Okay, good. That's, that's good. You can tell I'm a poet because <laughs> I describe my pillow <laughs> so well. Um, no, but I was reading, um, like I've read The Ethical Slut a couple of times mm -hmm. um and i was hanging out with anthony mm -hmm. um a couple weekends ago at red emma's and we were just perusing like the the book section and mm -hmm. I, they just had you know it was like it was out of course and i was like of course it was out <laughs> I, was, I should probably just buy a copy of this because it's like it's just good general like relationship information even if you're not like foraying into poly stuff um and i started reading it and i was like yeah and I've read it like a couple of times before, but it's like the the most recent time that I tried is like I don't I don't get I don't know I just it's not keeping my attention right now. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that it's a bad book or that the information in it's not 
useful or like pertinent it's just like i don't know i don't you were feeling it yeah and it's like that's fine it's like it's on my table over there yeah um i'm sure that at some point i will return to it but it's right now it's like meh, like music like i'm um i listen to my ipod at the shop a lot if i'm like sanding or something and i can't hear we have npr on if i if people are making a bunch of noise and i can't hear npr i'll just put on my ipod and just go um and I used to, there are certain days that I make it a point to, like, listen to all of the songs and not hop. And there are other days that it's just like, fuck it. It's like, I'm, yeah. like, I have it on shuffle. It's like, I'm feeling a certain thing and I want to find music that fits, that matches that feeling. And I'll bump through, like, five or six songs and somebody's like, yeah, okay, I can listen to this. And yeah. maybe, like, another, after that ends, it's like another six or seven songs. Like, okay, I can listen to this. And then I might go back to listen. You know, it's like, it's all, you, you owe allegiance to none of that shit. Just, right. you know, it's like, listen to what you want to listen to, read what you want to read. But that said, I also, you know, like, I don't, I don't make the sweeping, well, I, I, <laughs> I might, I don't know. But I try not to make sweeping generalizations about things that I've attempted to read and failed right, to yeah. finish. You know, it's not like, I don't think this is a bad writer. I don't think Elliot's a bad writer. Like, yeah, it's just, I'm going to go out and say, no, he's bad. Yeah, no, it's just like, it's just not, it's either not doing anything for you. Like at that time, or right. just, it never will, or exactly. it's just like they—they they are. Um, God, there's a writer who. There's one that I keep coming across that I keep giving, like I keep trying but you can't to read, escape. and I can't—I cannot remember the name of this person. It will probably come to me sometime tonight, and I will text you if I remember it. Please do. Um, yeah, but I've encountered them numerous numerous times and i'm like i just i can't and it's like everybody that i love is inspired by them or we like a situation like like everybody that or like a band that Mm -hmm. the decemberists over it (laughs) over it (laughs) period um fuck there's a band like anyway that's like there's a band that is a hub for like all these other bands that i love is very much inspired by them and i go and it's like i just i can't do it there's just it's like I'm glad that these other bands were inspired by these guys, and I'm glad that they're around because they led to some really fucking awesome writers and musicians and other artists. But it's just like they just don't—they don't do it yeah. for me. Yep. But Agreed. listeners, trust your instincts on that stuff most of the time because sometimes you encounter things and you're like, nah, I don't want to read it, and yeah. you probably should read it because it'll like blow open some sort of like part of you. Um, Virginia Woolf was like that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. She's a toughie. Because I, I read, I read to the lighthouse when I was in, I think undergrad or in high school, and then we read Mrs. Dalloway in Betsy's class, and like reading Mrs. Dalloway, oh I was like, God. oh my fucking shit, because it's, it's like beautiful. It's like Virginia. Oh, Dickinson, Emily Dickinson. Oh. I keep like bumping up against her. It's like I should love the things that she writes. Yeah. But I just I can't I can't do it. And like or like Plath, I know it's mm-hmm. like there's there are these moments in these like. Like objectively, something special about these people that the the, yeah. the time that they were writing, the things that they were doing, and just like everything coalescing to that, they were like tapped into something powerful. But it's just like I don't, it doesn't do anything for me. And it's not mm-hmm. again not to say like you like you mentioned, it's not to say that it's bad writing or that right. it's just, you know it's like it's not worthwhile. It's just like I don't. And I even have like a little pocket thing of Plath stuff on my shelf over there, and I've tried to read it like through two or three times. It's just like. Yeah. yeah and it's i don't it might be a time thing it might be i have to experience and that's something else that like um 
I'm in the process of trying to like go through some of my poetry books and to like whittle some things down. I think I have I have one or two that I've been meaning to give you. Please do. Um, and I'm kind of of like of two minds to pull out old Wallace Stevens. Um, mm. <laughs> Not of thirteen minds. Yeah. You sure? Yeah, I'm just just two. Um, <laughs> Wait, I was of two minds. I think it's of three. I was of three minds. The I don't blackbird. Know. I don't know. A blackbird sits in three blackbirds in three <laughs> trees or something. Anyway. Um, <laughs> fuck, what was I saying? Uh, you were two Oh, yeah. It's like I'm, I'm trying to declutter myself so I can make room for like more books. But there's a... Because, um, you know, like reading them, it's like, yeah, I don't... Like, it's just I'm not... They're not doing anything for me. Uh-huh. But there's always in the back of my head the sort of like, yeah, now... Right. And the tendency to, like, not want to get rid of anything because, like, I don't know when I'm going to have any, an experience that, like, suddenly Plath is like, oh, yeah, I need to, like, have that. Like, um, Bright Eyes was was a band that, like, I don't know why it took me so long to personally discover. Is that Connor Oberst? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, so many of my friends have, like, loved him and shared his music with me. Yeah. But it's just, like, within the last, like, year, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, I'm. This makes sense, um, but yeah. So I don't. I don't know. It's difficult for me to, to get rid of stuff with that in my head, especially books of like, see, it's not doing anything for me now, but it might. Yeah. At some point, and then I'm like, well, but then they, I have to go find it again. The it's like I just rent it from the library. Yeah, I mean, libraries. Is it, do you rent books from? What is the correct terminology from that? Check out. Yes. Borrow. You borrow. borrow. Yeah. You don't rent that shit. You borrow it. Anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my god. I remember like lending libraries being like a differentiation. I guess it's because like other libraries would just you can go in and, and view the items there. Oh uh, yeah. Like, like um, uh, law school stuff. It's like there's certain texts that you can't take out. Yeah. You can only view them at the. Or the Peabody Library. It's not a lending library. Mind blown. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Let's talk about your poetry. My poetry. Your poetry. <laughs> um, what about it? So we already kind of hit a little bit on your writing process. Uh-huh. Um, and if case read listeners out there can't tell, I'm trying to make the transitions from like just generally talking about shit and then <laughs> interviewing, questioning things, like not awkward. That was kind of awkward. Anyway. Um, the tangents are real. They're yes. Real. Um, I just threw my pen soul at Sarah Lynn. Um, so, I feel like these two kind of work in tangents. Okay. In, in Shoot. Cohort with each other. Um, biggest influence on your writing, influences, parentheses, um, on your writing, and any major shifts that have occurred so far that you can, Ooh. like, pinpoint. So, I'm... <clears throat> major influences on writing you know you, you sent me these in advance and i didn't i, I read through them but i mm-hmm. didn't focus on answers for all of them mm-hmm. biggest influence on my writing just like like not super in depth but just like first like if there are any any people that come to mind or like do you have like a like for myself i consider it my like personal pantheon of writers do you have like anybody that you would think of like oh yeah this is like two or three big name people for you that would be in 
So I would I would definitely say Sharon Olds and Ann Carson. They they are two female writers who do not shy away from the dirty underside of things. Do you know Mary Gateskill? Uh, you've you've lent lent me okay something. I didn't read it though. <laughs> lend it to me again. Let's try I this again. I still have it. Oh. I check out. Wait, it might be on my bookshelf. I may have never returned. I'll um, check. <laughs> you you should read Bad Behavior. That sounds familiar. Let me check my bookshelf. Okay. I might still have it. Because I like if that's you mentioning that, and I like I can't attest to Sharon Olds. Um, oh, she tried. has this poem called "The Pope's Penis," and it's Hot. like oh, it's g- genius. She she is a she is a dirty genius. She writes about her mother in excruciating. It. it that's the best way to describe Sharon. Some of Sharon Olds' poetry—it's excruciating. I need a. I, I her lo- her losing her virginity. It's her son with a fever. It's wow. it's it is the stuff of salt and wounds, for sure. Huh. But at the same time, like there's this, so much joy. She has this other poem about her daughter at a swimming pool and. You know, her daughter's hips in this bathing suit and this pool full of boys and her daughter just slipping into the water because her body is her own. Hmm. And it's just, it's really, it's a celebration. And I think she in particular does not shy away from writing about things that people wouldn't normally write about. You know, like you shouldn't, you're not supposed to write mm-hmm. about your son's penis. <laughs> you're not supposed to write about the Pope's penis. God but me. she does. And she does with wild abandon. <laughs> and I think it's great. And Anne Carson, she has that ability. I know that you've read her quite extensively. I have almost, I think all of her books except, well, except for a couple of them up on the um Is that not sitting up there? You know it is. Yeah. So, you know, it's she, she takes on some of those personas, but tackles that in a way also unflinchingly um you know autobiography of red all the things that she writes about like antagonic um autobiography of red her um translations of sappho um like i believe those yeah like wholeheartedly unquestioningly i believe them and i think that that's a like jerion garion Mm -hmm. like that is a he's real he is a real red little boy if you if you want a kind of weird experience, um, listen to Sufjan Stevens's Age of Odds while reading Autobiography of Red. Okay. It matches up. In Should the, I be with or without mushrooms? No, you want to be you want to be lucid for this. Okay. Um, and this is the only the second time that this has happened to me, but the like the 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 music and the book match up in really weird, kind of unexpected ways hmm. um the only other time that's that it's happened was i was reading bel canto who i didn't realize that Imp- and patchett was going to be reading at ub soon hmm. um but I, I read her book um, bel canto in high school and i was listening to dead poetics new medicines and again it m- matched up creepily and <laughs> like weirdly um with like certain sections of the book and it was like i was Unexpected, but neat. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Anne Carson, I was actually thinking um, when we were talking when we were talking about like the, your creative work at Hopkins. Yeah. I could see you writing something along the lines of um, 
like the glass essay, but in your own mm. like unique, like heavily researched, like yeah. whatever. I'd like to do that. I don't think we have a. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I. I keep um, a couple books on my desk, and when things are slow and I'm not surfing the web, otherwise because you know I do try to like read the yeah. Washington Post and the Sun and and like local major newspapers so that I can stay up to date because you never know when a hop. I mean, our. Our um, media relations team is usually pretty good about mm. keeping up to date, but like today I found something that we weren't aware of as being um, a mm. connection with Apple. And um, I saw an article. Somebody posted an article about that on Facebook. Yeah? We'll have to look it up, see? Um, oh, actually, it may have been me. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, so, you know, it's like... I unapologetically, when things are slow, when I don't have a, a current assignment, I feel really good about reading poetry mm -hmm. at my desk. And, um, you know, it's not the ideal way to experience poetry. And I'd like to continue to write some, but, you know, it's just part of that problem with having such a, with having a job that I love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that I don't feel compelled to write much poetry anymore. Yeah. That my job as questioner is being met. Is yeah, being fulfilled. Huh. Um, you might have to dig dig out a, yeah. a new like place that like a new thing that poetry does. Yeah. But speaking oh, of Oh, I'm sure like I have got a wedding coming up and after that yeah. we'll be looking into a house and then possibly starting a family and oh that's a whole host thing. oh yeah i can i am starting the nightmares now <laughs> they're real <laughs> i would it would be really neat um if you did a actually if i may cross promote my um my press um if you ever do this um i think it would be really really neat um and I would want to publish this if you did like a um, dream journal or like a poetic interpretation of like if you catalog and then interpret your nightmares and just have that as like a collection mm. of poetry. My nightmares are brutal. <laughs> they are disgusting. Maybe. <laughs> Let's put that down as a maybe. Anyway. Because I mean like there is this one that I most recently had that it was. I, just, I they're just um, I don't know they are awful well I guess like if don't we talk about my hand dream no oh god it was gross it was really gross like would I also I guess I would I would love to, to publish this work of yours if the writing out and the cataloging of your nightmares and dreams if that would be of like benefit to you yeah um, Possibly. I don't, I don't know if it would or not, because I know that's like some people. I oddly enough know a lot of people that have chronic nightmares. I don't know why I seem to, of the, of my friends, it seems to be kind of a like a constant trait among a lot of them. Um, and I know that some people like the facing it and like the the cataloging of it, like they can like regain some power over these things if yeah. it's if it's stuff that's like really affecting them. For other people, they just want to like not think about them and just let them be these kind of ephemeral stuff that passes and then they don't 
you know, they want to stay either I below or above them. Um, so if if it would help you <laughs> doing that. You know, I'd be open to that. Um, a lot of what uh, my poems and my thesis that are dreams yeah. had to do with motherhood. And so I was able to access a broader question through mm. these dreams. And in, in, in some of the nightmares that are in the thesis, the babies die. And what that was like, it was a lived experience in the dream. Right, yeah. You know, these I, I, I dreamt that my babies, um, I had two, and they kept shrinking and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was dealing with it. I was self-adjusting. I was like, all right, you know what? They're just smaller than most babies. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they were stones. And I was like, okay, stone babies, we're good. It's cool. And then there was an earthquake, and everything was diminished to rubble. And I couldn't tell which rubble were my babies. And that is exactly what happens in the poem. Mm -hmm. Like, I did not... I remember that poem well. Yes, and it allowed me to have a certain access to my own anxieties about motherhood. Um, similarly, I dreamt that I was had a baby on my chest and I was rocking in a hammock, and it died. Mm -hmm. It died of cold. And um, what that feeling was like. And, I mean, they're not all bad and the babies don't all die. I'm not just, like, serially killing babies <laughs> in my sleep. But, um, yeah, I, I guess it would take a lot of meditation on what these dreams mean. Well, I think that that, like, if you're looking for meaning or some sort of analysis of them, that might be something that develops out of, the, like Learning writing them out and it. seeing just like like if there are any commonalities between or like if they if you start seeing that like they come in like there are certain groups or like three main catalogs or like flavors of dreams that you have yeah. and all of them are going to be they all you can kind of like parse them down it's like oh it's this fear or it's this anxiety or it's yeah. the combination of these two my hand dream i dreamt so on the back of my left hand i have these two little freckles mm -hmm. and um i dreamt that one of them was a scat and I picked at it, and out came this white fuzz, like the inside of a cotton uh, seed, or like or like the the tip of a of a dried dandelion. Mm -hmm. And it was this like fibrous white substance that I pulled out, and it kind of like popped the rest of the skin open, and my entire hand had rotted out from the inside and was emptied. My hand was hollow. And, but I could still see the tendons and oh. they had like shrunk and, and it was kind of like, you know, in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when uh -huh. she opens the turkey and it's hollow and everything is like baked to the skin. It was like that. It was like my, my hand mm. was hollow. I, and I think that is a very real fear that many people have about their insides being rotten, about identity and who you are and how how you lie to yourself and and that anxiety and I think that's very universal yeah. but then some of my dreams are just nonsense fuck all crazy madness well if it's a, if it was your <laughs> like these are the dreams that make sense folks yeah. <laughs> and I think that's like that's I mean in that way you might be able to start building up your own kind of like dream library that like these particular things or mean, dream language yeah 
Like that that would be Children are often in my dreams. And they, bad things often happen to them. Not exclusively, but mm. usually. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Going back a little bit. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Um, you said that uh, reading poetry at Hopkins at work is not the ideal way that you'd want mm. to experience it. What is the ideal way that you would want to experience poem, like poetry in general, or like different types of poetry? And what is the ideal way that you would want your own to be experienced? Hmm. The ideal way for me to experience poetry is with a, a pen or pencil in hand. Um, I really like marking up the page. Um, so are readings difficult for you? Yes. <laughs> I do not like readings. Um, <laughs> like, I'm very sorry to... We just shook hands cause yeah. I'm I'm of a similar boat. Yeah, I, got, I feel really guilty because a lot of our really talented and wonderful friends host readings. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be there and to support them, but I do not like readings. I don't know if it's like my stomach makes a lot of noise while I'm sitting there and I'm self-conscious, or if it's... I, 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 I walk in and I get this, this oppressive jitteriness. I become giddy mm -hmm. and it I don't like it at all so would you I can't pay attention okay so I guess I mean I don't want to answer this for you but if that's the reaction that you have to reading this like being like an audience member of a reading do you have a similar reaction to being a reader at a reading like do you enjoy reading your own work out loud to other people it, well I don't mind it um being a reader I, I don't do it often um i don't seek it out because again i don't like mm -hmm. readings but there have been a few times where i've been compelled to read like the mfa reading mm -hmm. have i given any other readings i don't no I, I did one and um and i yelled at a man for talking over me oh yeah i was yeah he was like directing people where to sit and i was like excuse me <laughs> and i shouldn't have done that i was drunk but <laughs> you know the mfa reading it was that was like a culmination of sorts and so I was giddy but for other reasons mm -hmm. so no I, I don't prefer people to hear me read although it is nice to be able to provide things like inflection mm -hmm. rhythm tone things like that but I mean I don't think your poetry should rely on that I think it needs to be experienced independent of the writer okay. um, and uh, you know, hopefully it's with an active reader. I try to be an active reader, but, um, you know, it's, some poems don't need to be accompanied with a pen. Like I just opened the page to, I need to be more French or Japanese by Betha and Fennelly. It's one of my favorite poems. It's so funny. It's, and you don't, you don't need to, you don't need to read it with the dictionary. Although there is um, some French and some big words in it. So if you... I mean, this poem has the word weenie in it. <laughs> Maybe I just like low brow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been, th I've been thinking about this as a way to make readings more um, palpable. Yeah. No, not palatable. Do you have to be palatable? Palatable? Yes. God, 
Thank you. You were you were on point with the actually with the words that I'm trying to say. Um, thinking about ways to make readings more palatable for myself, um, and I was thinking about um, like the next time that I do it, printing out like I don't know, just a couple like depending upon the size of the venue that I'm reading, like a, a certain number of um, like real quick like pamphlets stitched up like a little collection of the things that I would possibly be reading that night. Um, and maybe not hit everything and maybe have a little bit b bigger selection of the stuff that I would read, but be like, you know, 10-ish poems and then I would read like five or six of it, of the poems that are in there depending upon how I'm feeling. Um, if you had something like that, like something that you could read along with or something that you could hold in your hands to read while I'm reading, would that, would you prefer that? Like would that make you less uncomfortable at a reading? Possibly because of the distraction factor, but all, I mean, a lot of us, the issues that I have are that someone is speaking and I don't want to be rude. Uh, you know, okay. I was a marching band and we took our courtesy very, very seriously. Like, you don't get up and walk out in the middle of someone's performance. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do that when you're in a cramped coffee shop yeah and well I feel like I'm I'm grateful for all the coffee shops around Baltimore that host readings and all the and they're great and stuff. yeah but I'm I wish that there was a place that was dedicated just for a reading that didn't serve another purpose because it's like it's really tough to be in a space that's not designed that was not designed with the intent of like people are going to be here performing, performing and speaking and yeah. that like your goal or like your point of going there is to be captivated by it's like I love theater I love theaters set up so much because you have the space that the performer is supposed to be you have all the chairs and all these things arranged in such a way that they are the sole like focal point of all the attention in the room right um and you're just you're there and that's like the reason that you go to these things is to see the person up on stage doing whatever it is that they're going to do right um which is why i really dislike um going to shows at bars unless there's like a like um auto bar unless there's a clearly designated space for the show if it's just kind of in a general open area with a bar happening it's like like what the fuck's the point yeah you know like because I'm going to be uncomfortable standing there for, like, two hours. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing is I, I just, for me, um, I gain access to words by seeing them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a very verbal person, and I appreciate having words right in front of me. Uh, I, I'm, I can't argue. I can't debate. Because when the heat is on me, I can't speak even. <laughs> huh. Like, that is how important the process of writing mm -hmm. something out is to me. And so, the same way when, I, when I'm doing an interview at work, I cannot for the life of me take notes while that person is speaking. Mm. I have to record it because I, I will not remember I won't remember what they said. I won't remember how they said it. Um, and that's just me. And so I don't really get a lot out of readings because in the moment, there's only so much that I can process. And then you don't have access to it again after that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, you know, it's it, that's just who I am. And and the, sh- the shame is that we have so many talented and wonderful friends who are active in readings around Baltimore. And I, I just... And it really sucks. <laughs> it's like that's one of the main ways for you to get more exposure. Yeah, and exposure as a, as a writer is by doing readings. And if you're like me or Sarah Lynn, that... It's not it's not your speed. There's very few other ways that you can get other people to actually like to experience and have access to yeah. your work. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the other thing for me. I've never really been interested in having other people read my work. Mm. My work is very personal, and um, I'm also of a take it or leave it kind of mentality where I worked on it from for my master's degree, but not because I wanted to be a writer. Right. I, from the start, got into the creative writing and, pu- and publishing arts program for right, the publish yeah. for the yeah. publishing arts. Yep. Speaking of that, um, I don't know if you would be willing to go back to school, um, but I was looking around um, and recently a link to a job opening at George Washington University, mm-hmm. and by just kind of scoping out the school, I discovered that they have a master's in publishing, mm-hmm. um, which gives you it's like you essentially are a rundown of the industry right um which i feel like you well thinking about it now you probably have had more experience with like being in the industry than the industry is changing so much yeah i mean that might be a rundown of the late 90s early 2000s industry i don't know they they seem like they're pretty up with it's like like one of the one of the um so they're like there's the general like editing like all this editing classes you or like the general kind of like publishing classes and you have like it's separated out into individual tracks and I think one of them is like online like specifically like online publications and how to how to do all of that yeah but see the interesting thing for me is so much now is moving toward blogs um, self-publishing independent publishing and or like micro presses micro and so I don't see how they even the best most up-to-date program is going to be out of date in six months yeah um so i can see that i mean that's just my my view and and honestly i i don't know if i would go back to school unless it was entirely free yeah um you know i've looked at some classes at hopkins in journalism um can you well i've thought about it uh, i haven't actually looked at it but since like since you're an employee there you get like Tuition remission. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. I know. And it would actually help my job, and they would actually be really happy with me for doing it. Do it. Yeah, it's like, I, I definitely, I can see you, I can see you ultimately becoming a, um, not like a memoirist, but like somebody who, who writes books based upon research reportage, but you hmm. work in yeah, really I'd, beautiful I'd like that. language. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, Do it. If, they, if they'll help you out with it, fuck, go for it, man. Yeah, yeah, I probably should. I, I want to be there for a little bit longer before I... <gasps> Hi, kitty. He's like, oh, shit, who's that? The cat who has been hiding underneath the couch for the entirety of this episode. She's so little. Um, yes, she's a very small cat. Um, she, oh. just, she just slink, slunk away. Slunk. Slink. I don't know, slunk. Slunk. Um, okay, so since we're approaching like an hour and a half, yeah. Um, I have two two other questions. Okay. For you. I mean, I have a bunch of other questions for <laughs> you, but I'm gonna ask these two because these are two that I will ask everybody. Okay. 
Um, the first, if you can, okay. if you if you thought about it, the challenge. Have, well, yeah. Like I don't. I think a lot of people haven't thought about this before seeing this question. Okay. So if you have, if you have the experience or the vocabulary to describe your internal landscape, what is it? Yeah. I did see this question earlier and I was like, hmm. I think I don't have an internal landscape. Not that I would say. I would mm. say that maybe I have an internal room. Mm. Um, it's very close, it's very small, and it's very sparkly. <laughs> mm. But um, I'm very calm, I would say even keeled but uh but sparkly and possibly jagged <laughs> that's how i would describe my name is it like, like is a it, like a furnished no like a sparkly cave Ooh. <laughs> but small and tight like you're wedged in there so like you you could sit like 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 you would be sitting but like slightly hunched in this space would be like a like the end of a crawl space sort of sparkly jagged room no like imagine you have no body and that you are just oh so just like a crevice or just, like the inside of like a geode yeah like you are just ah. existence and awareness and you're not resting on anything you're just you're centered just and the things around you are Shiny, yeah, like a geode, I would say. Not the purple kind, but like the, the really, really white kind. I can see... Let's sparkle now and then. But are sharp. Huh. I, I mean, I don't know, do you call that a landscape? No, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I use landscape as a pretty loose term. It's just like whatever you're... Whatever... <laughs> whatever, um... Like emotional or... Um, like emotional image or any sort of like idea imprint that you get that the what the inside like the intangible inside of you yeah looks like or feels like yeah i i think you know when i close my eyes i don't go anywhere i don't feel transported um when i meditate i don't feel transported um but i i think I think I tend to be a very even-keeled person. I don't have a lot of highs or lows, um, and and but I also, you know, things are kind of sharp and jagged and mean. <laughs> they can be, and they can also be that kind of cold, distant beauty that a geode has um but at the same time in close quarters mm -hmm. um contained yeah it's interesting that it's you it's rendered to you as so like compact yeah because the other people that i've so so far sharia and karen are the only other people that i've asked so far this question and both of them have pretty like sharia's is pretty fucking expansive um and karen's was so she's like Walt Whitman, I contain. Yeah, hers like, hers was actually populated, which was the first that oh, I wow. um, was like, that was this is really fucking cool. That is cool. Um, and then Karen's is like a particular, um, like a particular location. It's like it's there's stuff going on around it, but her landscape is like that particular location. 
Um, so it's interesting that yours is not so much, I mean, there's probably somewhere underground that looks like whatever it is that you're talking about, but it's for you, it's like, it's a, it's a super compact. Um, it's kind of cold, but really bright. Yeah. Which can also kind of warm you that yeah. light, the way light warms you, even when you're kind of cold. Yeah. I experienced that earlier today. When I was yeah. Out. What a beautiful day. That's really interesting. I'm I'm very glad that uh, this has become a question, like yeah. a standard question that I ask people, because that's like in that same thing with like the perspectives of and like the ways that you talk about things and the things that you choose to to talk about or that you pay attention to can reveal and usually do reveal a great deal about yourself. I feel like this question, um, probably more than any other any other one that I've asked or that I will ask people, really I think like. Gets reveal, to the kernel. Yeah, like really reveals a lot about like how the person or whoever it is experiences things, thinks about things, thinks about themselves. Um, yeah. Like how they're situated in themselves. Yeah. It's um, really cool. Thanks. <laughs> um, and my last question is traditional last question. Is there anything you want to ask me? No, I mean I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean I, I. Have you been writing? No, I also haven't been reading a whole lot, um, but I have been working on um, music. Uh, I started a EP, an EP. Yeah, an EP. Anyway, um, over the blizzard. Hmm. Um, and I got, uh, it's a total, it will be a total of six songs, and I have four completely done, uh, five is about half done, and I have a pretty strong inkling of what six is going to be, but I haven't, mm. with scheduling and stuff, I haven't had a whole lot of time to work on that, um, but, and I guess, I guess I can mention this, um, I think Elise has started the, the media blitz on this, um, I have a chapbook coming out on April 16th, um, published by my friend Elise Richmond, um, who, oh shit, I just realized that I could probably get her as guest number two for April, because um, I'm going up to do a reading, funnily oh, enough, great. Um, in like support of the book. Good for you. Um, but as a, um, as a like pre-order... Um, promo deal mm-hmm. um, whoever pre-orders the book will get a um, code for a free download of a song that's going to be like attached to the book buy my book yeah um, so I've been working on that like that's taking precedence right now is Aww. to get that 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 recorded and like written and recorded um, that is so exciting yeah so I've been congratulations thank you um, oh and I just to, to tout my my own press again, um, mm-hmm. I just got in contact with Spencer Printing because I'm going to print. I'm going to use them to print Anthony's book. Good. Oh, what's Anthony's book? Um, oh, so my uh, my press, Akinoga Press, is um, publishing a collection of poetry by Anthony Mall, who was my first guest, uh, called "Go to the Ant, O Sluggard." Um, it's a collection of fibs, fibs, uh, which is a uh, poetic form. Um, so each line of the is a it's a structured poetic form in which each line of the poem corresponds syllabic syllabic no syllabically yes thank you I'll let you just say that because I'm not gonna be able to um, with 
the numbers of the Fibonacci sequence. So the first line has one syllable, second line has one syllable, third line has two, three, or you can do it backwards. And like You can pick just a starting point and be like, first line has eight, second line has five, then three, then two, then one, then one. Cool. Um, so he wrote a bunch of these while working at UB, um, and uh, like a couple years ago, and um, we worked it into a manuscript and we worked it into a book, and it will be published sometime in May. Awesome. Um, Good work. So I've been like, that's my creative stuff has been pulled more towards like that. editing. Yeah, and Good. like design and music. You have to stretch to, that part of your brain. I have some stuff. I actually, there was the day at the shop, um, I was sanding something and I thought of a line about a poem, or I thought of a line for a poem about my, I think it's going to be about my mom. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I can read. Oh, I have to find it. I can read you the line that I wrote. Let's hear it. Um, so I think that this is probably going to come at some point later in the poem. Um, it's gonna, so my mom um, was a dancer. She was a ballerina, or she did ballet when she was younger. Um, but as she got, like, she had to give that up. And um, when I was growing up, like, into high school age, she started developing some, like, chronic health issues. Um, and I think the poem is going to be about, like, living with those chronic health issues and like not so much a persona poem but like trying like writing it from a place of like trying to understand what she might experience because she hasn't she's only very briefly mentioned um like the stuff that she's gone through and how it's made her feel so it's like trying to, to suss some of that out for myself um so the line that i came up with while i was at the shop um is or the lines that i came up with are um the rebellion of the body the persistent betrayal of waking, going to the mirror, and seeing or seeing or watching your childhood home burning into the ground. Mm. So that's the persistent betrayal. Yeah. Of going to the mirror and seeing your childhood home burning. So that's, that's kicking around up there. And once I get finished with all the other creative stuff I'm doing, that will probably pop out in some form or another. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being, thank you for being a guest. Absolutely. Um, I've... If you want to edit this down from three hours, two hours. Fuck no. It's going... <laughs> the only thing that I do is that I add the intro music and then it just goes Ooh. up. Um, I, I don't know. And my... My uh, outward answer for not editing is that I'd like for these to be as spontaneous and just like in Authentic. the moment as possible. Yes. My actual reason for it is that I don't know a whole lot about editing. And I really <laughs> don't want to take the time to do it. Yeah. Because um, I have... I just, just as good a reason as any. Yeah. Um, so I have been trying to come up with a like sign off for this and I haven't been able to. So I think... Good I'm night gonna, and good luck. No. I don't want it to be any, any sign off that anybody else has used. But I... Appreciate the suggestion. And as such, I've been uh, leaving it up to my guests to figure out what to say at the end of it. Um, so, oh, take, take us out, Sarah Lynn.
They'll belly up with loneliness and float off toward the ceiling fans in all these small cafes where I sit watching hours on end to learn their little order eating alone. That's it, guys. Um, thank you, Sarah Lynn, for being here. Thank you. Um, this is episode 10. Uh, thank you all for consistently listening. Oh, shit. Um, were you going to try to... I was going to try to say what that was from, but no, I lost it because I shut the stupid page. I'll, I'll make sure to, to put up a, a link to it in the in the description of this guy. Um, yeah, but this is, this is episode 10, I think, hopefully. Um, stay tuned for April. I will hopefully have some interesting people coming up. Um, until then, thank you. Thanks.